So we're picking up here in the middle of sort of the story of Saul's conversion. Those who haven't been with us or you're new to us today, we're studying through the book of Acts. We are in the conversion story of Saul. And we spent our time last week looking at how wonderfully and miraculously Saul was saved. And now we're going to spend our time moving through the narrative to see what that saved life looked like for him almost right out of the gate. Um, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray. Our Father, once again, we come before your word, eager to hear uh, your truth, eager to hear your voice. Um, grant us all we need, Lord, to attend, to hear that voice, to receive that word, to be changed because of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when many days had passed, our passage this morning follows on the heels of that miraculous conversion of Saul, a man who had been ruthlessly persecuting the church of God, but who by God's grace was saved to become its great missionary and defender. It had been many days since um, Saul had changed. If the scripture um, just read, that faith just read from Galatians 1 explains what happened right after he got saved, and most people think that is, that is what happened, then those many days actually translate into about three years, three years that Saul was in Arabia. We just don't know uh, from what the text says, and uh, we can only surmise from other details in the story that it had been more than just a few days or a week or even a month, because as we get into it, we see that by this time Saul had a following, he had disciples, it takes some time to get those, right? He had a reputation enough as a Christian that his enemies wanted to kill him, and where once he was seen as a threat in the church, now he is understood to be an asset that needs to be protected. So it's been more than a few days, it could have been upwards of three years where Saul is establishing himself as a preacher of the gospel in the church. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. See, Saul was useful to the Jewish establishment when he was doing their bidding. In fact, he was somewhat of a hero for them. Uh, he was a rising star in the ranks of Judaism. He, he says that in Galatians. He says it in other places. And the religious authorities, they were good with him because he was their hitman. But as soon as Saul had a change of heart, he quickly became dispensable, and then, of course, he had to go. He was an opponent of the orthodoxy, and he had to go. And the way that the Jews thought they could remove him was to kill him, all right? Not coincidentally, 
That should sound familiar to you, Christian. This is the same page of the playbook that they used against Jesus, right? And so the title of this message this morning is Like Savior, Like Servant. As we follow Saul's life and we follow Saul's ministry through the book of Acts, we're going to see just how it um, resembles and parallels the experiences of Jesus. Uh, this is one of those times. Saul is boldly preaching the truth the way that Jesus did, and his enemies are jealous, and they deem him a threat, and they decide that they're going to kill him. Verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. So the target is on Saul's back. We don't know how Saul came to know of the plot, but somehow it has been revealed, so good. The contract is out on him, and he's well aware. And the conspirators, we say, are serious about this because they're watching the city gates 24-7. Daytime and nighttime, they're watching the gates. They're waiting for an opportunity to do him in. Now, you and I don't live in an era of city gates, right? That's not, that's not a thing for us, not, not in this country anyway. Um, but we read a good amount about city gates in the Scripture. Perhaps you recall that, right? I mean, Nehemiah goes to rebuild Jerusalem, and it's gate after gate after gate after gate. Some of you have actually had the, the lovely privilege of, of visiting Jerusalem, and you've seen some of that sort of stuff. Back then, in, in those days, cities were often fortified by walls, right? And those walls equated to the peace of the city, if the city could be fortified, it kept the bad guys out and it kept the good guys in, right? Makes sense. And so the, the, the access to these cities was limited by a certain amount of gates, however many they wanted to build in there. And that's what uh, is being referenced here. There are gates that are being watched in Damascus because there's only a couple of ways that you can get in and get out of the city. And if they can close those off, then, the, then they, will, they will catch Saul and they will be able to kill him. But his disciples, we read in verse 25, took him um, by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And um, exactly how that happens too, we don't know. Some people surmise that some of the houses were built right up against the wall, and that did happen in some places. And so there was a window that they could get out through. Others say that the openings were on the top of the wall, and they just climbed up there and chose one that was you know, where there didn't happen to be a street light. No, there's no street lights back then. But, um, and lowered him down. It doesn't really matter. All we know is that there was an opening, and they found a basket big enough to hold Saul, and they put him in it, and they set him down to safety on the other side. His escape is carried off by his disciples, and he escapes the assassination attempt. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is well known for saying, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And here we might add, but not until he has to, Right? because Saul was in the targets, in the crosshairs, but he's not ready to perish. And, of course, I'm speaking um, literally, not until you have to. I mean, figuratively and spiritually, if you want to come to Jesus, you do have to die to yourself. That's a prerequisite. That is something that Jesus said. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Um, and this following has for many, like Stephen, um, for instance, we've already studied that, but and for thousands upon thousands of Christians, martyrs through the ages, right? This following of Jesus had, has led many to death. 
Uh, it was happening in Saul's day. It's going to happen in the last days, but not today for Saul is what that boils down to. Today is not his day. Under the cover of darkness, he makes a dramatic escape from Damascus. He makes his way then up to Jerusalem. And when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they didn't believe that he was a disciple. See, in Jerusalem, Saul is greeted with understandable suspicion because he had been such a marauder of the church. He'd been such an enemy of the church. And even though it had been some time since he had been there doing those things, he, his reputation preceded him. But Barnabas, there's this guy named Barnabas, and his name is Son of Encouragement. He's a big-hearted man, and uh, he takes Saul under his wing, and he befriends Saul, and he defends Saul, and he goes to the apostles, and he tells them Saul's conversion story, how Saul was on the road, and how the Lord met him there, and how he has changed, and how he really now is sold out for Jesus, and he is not a persecutor of the church, that Saul had then, since his conversion, spent his time preaching boldly about Jesus Christ. Christ. And so uh, the apostles listened to him and they received Saul to a degree and he continued to do that preaching even in Jerusalem. Um, he was going to prove, Saul was going to prove the veracity of his faith by, by um, preaching. And we do see here that clearly Saul is uh, the sort of person who when he believes something he commits himself wholeheartedly to it, right? You know that about Saul from other um, passages that you may have read, but this is who he is. He's one of those all-in kind of guys. When he, this is how he's wired. This is not something about Saul that God actually has to change, right? Because he is an intense, all-in kind of guy. Sometimes I wonder if one of the reasons that people are hesitant to, um, to trust in Jesus, one of the reasons that people um, may hold back um, from becoming saved is because they believe that absolutely everything about themselves is going to have to be changed. It's all going to have to be flipped upside down. Even, even um, might, they might even lose themselves in a way that they, they disappear, that they would no longer be themselves. That's what some people may perceive the calling of Christ to be. I wonder then if we value maybe the good parts of us that we think are worth keeping if we maybe overvalue those things. Or maybe we undervalue what it is that God could do with us if he actually got a hold of us and changed some of those things. Either way, and I like how John MacArthur put this when he preached about the conversion of Saul. He says, when we become saved, God refines the usable parts of us and replaces the unusable. Okay, So he's going to refine the usable parts of who you are. And he's going to hone them, and he's going to shape them for the unique work that he's called you to do. And he's going to replace the stuff that needs to go, right? And that's when in Ephesians we read about being God's workmanship, that he's sort of knocking the edges off. That's his regular business. That's his sanctifying work. That's the process of us becoming holy. This is what God does, right? He refines the usable parts of us, and he replaces the unusable um, those elements of the man named Saul that will serve the kingdom, he's going to refine his fervor, his intellect, his intensity, his knowledge of the scripture, and his gift for preaching. And he replaces those parts of Saul that just, they have to go away. They're in opposition. We're not going to have Saul in here uh, for any length of time. We're going to be talking about Peter more next week. But Dr. Luke draws this portion of chapter 9 to a close with the brief summary verse, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee 
and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Remember Luke's aim here in sharing with us through the book of Acts is to help us see the growth and the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Saul is in Tarsus, the spirit is growing, and that's where we leave off that particular portion of the narrative this morning. What can we learn so far from Saul's escapes? This, these few verses from this account, what can we learn? Are there implications here for us? I want to share four of them with you, possibilities at least. Number one, Saul suffered for being a Christian, and we may too. Saul suffered for being a Christian, and we may too. One thing you've got to love about Jesus is he never, he, he never um, misrepresented what it would mean to follow him. Not at all. If anything, it almost seems like our Lord at times is almost trying to discourage someone, as in at least saying, have you counted the cost of what it means to become a true follower of Jesus Christ? You realize this is going to cost you something. Um, the truth is, becoming a Christian, being a Christian, really can be hazardous to your health. Um, and I think maybe it should come with a warning label, right? I mean, we're so spoiled, we need a warning label. Look out, your coffee's hot. Oh, well, thanks. Um, maybe we don't need a warning label, but actually we have a warning label, right? It's in Scripture, in, in uh, Matthew 10, the Scripture that Justin read. We have a warning from Jesus himself. Matthew 10, 21 and 22, Jesus says, brother will do, so this is what's going to happen. Brother will deliver brother over to death. Father is child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus talks about some pretty desperate times for his followers there. Some, some people have lived through those times. And we believe certainly in the last days that we're going to see those times again. As persecution against Christianity is on the rise. And as it becomes ever more um, pricey to say that you really do love Jesus and you want to identify with him and with his church. It's always um, been hard in my lifetime to envision that day that Jesus talks about when there is such persecution because I've grown up in such a blessed state. You know, it's never, it's never been a problem for me to worship. I never felt threatened to come to church. I have so many friends and family that are in the exact same boat. So when I always, when I've read these words, I, I really do struggle to get my head around it. And yet, um, as we recognized the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, we are reminded that the ravaging of this church is very real around the world. And we definitely know that the tide of persecution is rising here on the shores of the land of the free. What that translates to is the increasing possibility, friend, of suffering for the sake of being a Christian. And I just want to lay this out here so that maybe you'll be ready for that, so that you can stand firm, which is what we're told in Ephesians chapter 6 and in other places, so that you can endure to the end, which is the message of Jesus. Um, since the disciple is not greater than his teacher, the servant not greater than her master, we could expect that what happened to Jesus could happen to us. And, and the reason Jesus tells us not to fear the one who can kill the body is because that is a distinct possibility. And that's happening in the world today. And it could happen here. So, you know, if we're honest, it really hasn't been especially dangerous or costly to be a Christian in America. 
The question I want to toss out there for you to ponder is, will you still be a Christian if that changes? If it's not easy. If it puts you under threat, would you still be a Christian? If the world calls Jesus a devil, how much more will it mischaracterize and malign those who are of his household? As he was reviled, we might be too. Like Savior, like servant. Saul is finding this out. The hater of Christianity is now hated because of his Christianity. Following Jesus has literally put his life at risk. Point number two, the true nature of Saul's relationships were exposed when he became a believer in Jesus, and ours may too. See, Saul served a utilitarian role for the Jewish leaders. He was willing to do the dirty work of persecuting the Christian church. But when God took hold of him and he became a Christian, they dropped him like a hot potato. And that, that was not a relationship that he regretted losing, okay? In fact, what he regretted greatly, and he said it again, was everything that he had done prior. What he regretted was all the persecution that he had done to the church. But, but the fact that he was just left like that does reveal the nature of the relationship that he had with the Jewish religious leaders, that his conversion to Christ made him an immediate enemy of theirs. And some of you know this painfully from your own experience. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. He says, even your closest allies can turn on you when you turn to Christ. And that, too, is another reason why some people may be hesitant to receive Jesus, because they understand that that will put them at odds with some of the people that mean the most to them, and that may, put, that, that may change those sorts of relationships. The, the people closest to you may even turn on you when you come to follow Jesus. And again, some of you have done that. Some of you have made a profession of faith, and it has cost you those relationships. And again, the question is, if you haven't done that, and if it hasn't cost you those relationships, would you be willing to follow Jesus at the expense of those relationships? Because Jesus basically says, no, no one's worthy of me who isn't willing to give everything up to follow me. And that's a hard saying. Number three, Saul needed the help of fellow Christians to fulfill his calling, and we do too. Amen? Saul needed the help of his fellow Christians to fulfill his calling, and so do we. Shame on us if we think that we don't need other Christians to be the Christian we're supposed to be. Like Saul literally needed them. Who's going to drop him out the window? Who's going to get him to the ship to get him to Tarsus? Who's going to stand in the gap and defend him to the apostles? If it's not Christian brothers, we need Christian brothers and sisters to fulfill the calling of God on our lives. Leave us to ourselves. We are, we're not good lone rangers, right? No man is an island that's poem means something kind of different, but the, the, the truth is we don't go through this life by ourselves. God has gifted us with fellowship. And as I said last week, when one comes to know Jesus, one inherits a family. That Ananias could say to Saul, Brother Saul, after all that Saul had done, but it is true, when you come to Jesus and you are saved, you inherit a family. And is it just the beauty of inheriting that family? It's that you need that family. And also that that family needs you, right? 
So in Hebrews chapter 10, we're told, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. All of us preachers love that verse because it lets us stand in a pulpit and say, you need to come to church. I mean, that's, but, but if you read that in context, what he's talking about is we need each other to pro provoke each other, to encourage each other in good deeds, all the more as we see the day drawing near. So brothers and sisters, do you see the day drawing near? Yes, you do. We are in those end times. It is ramping up, and we need each other. If we're going to survive, if we're going to thrive, if we're going to fulfill God's call, we absolutely need each other. The apostle uh, Paul, back then we're calling him Saul, may have lost some false friends, but he gained a family, and he needed them to keep him safe and to preserve him. Think about it this way. God used the brothers and the sisters in the church to preserve Saul for the work that he knew Saul was going to do. That's literally what, what's going on here. Number four, Saul escaped trouble and death this time. But he would not always. And neither will we. There will be other times in Saul's faithful walk with God where trouble will be averted and there will be times when it will not be averted. Over the course of his years of living a dedicated life for Jesus, he's going to find himself imprisoned. He's going to find himself beaten, tortured, shipwrecked. Again, the life of following Christ is not a guaranteed trouble-free life. If anybody sold you that bill of goods, you know if you worship in this church, we're clear about it. it isn't, that's not the way it's going to be. Why anyone is spared some trials and made to go through others is a mystery only God really knows the answer to. But this much we can know. We are made by God to glorify God. The days of our lives are numbered before we live even one of them. Read that in Psalm 139 this morning. And God preserves his saints in this life, catch this, until he doesn't. He preserves his saints in this life until he doesn't. And if he doesn't, it cannot be said of him, that he has ever forsaken us or left us. Let me unpack this a little bit, say it maybe a little different way. I go back to that sentence. We are made by God to glorify God. The days of our lives are numbered before we live one of them, and God preserves his saints in this life until he doesn't. We are made by God to glorify him. So, so basically what I want to encourage you with this morning is let's not waste whatever time we have not glorifying God. If seeing how we are made by him to glorify him, let's not waste any of our time not doing that. Let's walk circumspectly. Uh, we are told by, by Paul in Ephesians to walk circumspectly, to walk wisely in this world because the days are evil. Let's not assume anything. Let's not take anything for granted. Let's not squander our opportunities. Let's make the best use of our talents and our days so that in the end, what we have spent, we have spent on the cause of Christ. So that when we stand before him, we have a report to give. So that we can say we were good soldiers in the army of Christ. That we were faithful. That's what we want. So let's not squander. We're made by him to glorify him. So let's, let's eagerly pursue what it looks like to glorify God with our lives. The days of our lives are numbered before we live one of them. That's the reason that we can live boldly. Okay? 
the way that Saul did, as instruments in the Redeemer's hands, confident that he's going to order our steps in this world. Do notice that Saul stewarded the gift of life as best he could. He fled to preserve his life, which is the exact advice Jesus gives his disciples in Matthew 10, right? Flee. Flee to the next city. So we're not told in Scripture to be careless. We're not told to be reckless with our lives. But we are going to die, okay? And we shouldn't die until we have to, right? If that makes any sense. But we, but we can be at peace knowing that the perfect, sovereign, beautiful will of God determined before you or I ever saw the light of day how many days we would stay on this earth. It's a done deal. Do you get that? God knows. God knows the number of your days, and therefore you can spend your days for him. All right? Live boldly. Don't worry. And last, God preserves his saints in this life until he doesn't. I realize just the way I am, sometimes I say stuff and people are like, what? You know, or that's kind of, you know, that's kind of abrupt. Yes, yes, I can be. And maybe this doesn't set well with you that God preserves the life of his saints in this world until he doesn't. But friend, if you want to get anything from me, you're going to get the truth. When God stops preserving the life of his saints in this world, he takes them home. He takes them home to their eternal reward where they will live with him forever without an ounce of pain or grief or sorrow. This is what happens when God stops preserving the life of his saints in this world. He takes them to the eternal world. That is not a downgrade. That is not something to be offended by. That is not something to be upset by. That is something to be looking forward to, Christian. Peter tells you this world is not your home. You are a pilgrim. You are a sojourner. You are not a citizen of the earth. You are a citizen in the kingdom of God. And God's going to keep you right here doing his work for as long as he wants you to be. And when you're done, he's going to open up the gates of heaven and you're coming in. Amen? We don't have to dread anything. The death of his saints, God in his word calls precious. It is a glorious, it is, is a glorious and everlasting reconciliation, reunion. And not just for us, but for all who love Jesus. So the parting by death among Christians is never goodbye. It is always see you later. Always. Saul is whisked away to the coast and then to his hometown of Tarsus, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit is multiplied. So there's a period of calm for the church. It could have been a literal period of calm. The church's major persecutor had been um, converted some time ago. That's a good thing, right? Like the guy that's causing all the trouble, he's on our side now. And then, in fact, he's out of the picture was there no one else to take his place? Well, of course there were. We knew that. We know that. So if there was a literal um, season of peace for the church in those regions outside of Jerusalem, it, it was a season and it was short-lived. 
But I kind of almost believe that the, the presence of peace in the church through Judea and Galilee and Samaria that Luke talks about was not because of all the threats and the conflicts had gone away. And it, that's, that's often how we understand peace, isn't it? That if we can just have some peace, it means that I'll have no more trouble, I'll have no more conflict, I'll have no more struggle. But the peace of Scripture, the peace of God, I, th I know you know this, but I want to remind you, it's rooted in relationships, not circumstances, right? That's the peace of God. It's rooted in your relationship, not your circumstances. We have peace because we know and we trust the one who holds tomorrow. I, I, I like that old Gaither song, and I don't know who holds tomorrow, right? But I know who holds my hand kind of thing. I don't know who holds tomorrow, but I, I, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. I'm not saying it right. Because it's late. But you know what I mean. As Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure and death, John records his words, chapter 14 of his gospel. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's a benediction of sorts. And what in context is Jesus leaving with his friends? You remember John chapter 14? So he's saying, I'm going to leave you peace. I'm leaving you peace. What's he leaving? Not just a feeling, I can assure you that. He's leaving a person. He's leaving the Holy Spirit. The helper. The Holy Spirit. So whether the early church is enjoying a period of calm after persecution or maintaining calm in the face of ongoing persecution, it had peace because why? It had the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit produces all sorts of uh, fruit in those with whom he dwells, right? Love and joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and, of course, peace. Not only does the church have peace, it's also making progress. Luke tells us that it's being built up. It's multiplying, it's growing, the church is becoming stronger because Jesus is doing what he said he would do. Jesus is trustworthy and he's building his church. Verse 31 tells us the church is walking in the fear of the Lord. This is the end. Fear of the Lord, being comforted by the Holy Spirit, which means not in the fear of man or according to the spirit of the age. When we read the scripture, we want to be careful to read the words. They matter, right? In something as simple as that, they're walking in the fear of the Lord and they're being comforted by the Holy Spirit. Then we got to say, well, what doesn't it mean? Well, it means that they are not walking in the fear of man, which would have been understandable and easy for them to do, but they're not going to do that, and they're not walking according to the spirit of the age, which also would have been accommodating or something that they could have done to get along better. No, they're walking according to the Holy Spirit. To walk in the fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit is what commentator Ben Witherington hails as two characteristics of a faithful church responding to a hostile environment. So United Baptist Church, this is what we must do, right? We must walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And on that, we'll close our exploration of this portion of Acts 9. Reminded, I think, that we will do well to emulate these early brothers and sisters. And as we press on in the mission God has for us, let us be sure to keep the fear of the Lord before us. And let us walk in the assurance and consolation of the Holy Spirit who resides in us, who is with us, and who leads us. Our Father and our God, uh, we praise you and thank you for this witness, this testimony of your scripture of how you are faithful to your chosen ones. 
You may not call us to an easy path, but you promise to accompany us on that path. And that is all we really need. And we thank you that that is true. And when it isn't true, Lord, help us to find that it is. Continue to teach us and refine us to be truly dependent upon you and concerned primarily with your glory in this world. Help us to live our lives wisely for your sake, for your honor, for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.